Hi, my name is Grant Fishbook, and I am honored to be the lead teaching pastor here at Christ the King Church in Bellingham, Washington. Thank you so much for choosing to access this online content today. We really hope you'll enjoy this message. One of our values here at Christ the King is biblical face-to-face -face community. And so while we are so excited that you joined us today online, I really want to encourage you. Make sure that this is never a replacement for face-to-face -face biblical community. Your story matters, you matter, and we want to see you get connected in a local church. Now, if you're here in our area, we would love to have you join us at any one of our five campuses. But if you find yourself outside of the Bellingham area, we really want you to get connected into a local church. So we hope and pray that that happens for you very, very soon. chasing something just out of reach. Power, pleasure, success, approval, wealth, wisdom. Solomon obtained all of these, yet at the end of his life, he said, it is only vapor, meaningless, like chasing the wind. But what if there's more to life? What if there's something worth the chase? Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I want to welcome you here to the early service and those of you that are watching online as well. If you've got a Bible, an app, an outline, or whatever else you need to grab a hold of, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So we've been doing a series on Ecclesiastes. It's a wisdom book. It's a part of the Bible known as wisdom literature. It's 2,500 to 3,000 years old, but to me, it feels like it was written yesterday. It's an incredible commentary on everything that's going on in our world currently, we have a lot to learn. We're doing 12 chapters in 12 weeks. If you've missed any of the previous four chapters, let me give you an overview in about seven minutes, okay? Solomon is the son of King David. He's charismatic, powerful, good-looking, and wealthy beyond our imagination. God offered Solomon anything that he wanted, and Solomon chose wisdom. But there was an issue. The issue was simply this, Solomon immersed himself in wisdom, but he often chose not to follow it. He ignored God's wisdom repeatedly, and at the end of his life, he has this end-of-life perspective. He turns back, looks over his, the entirety of his life, which he uses the phrase, under the sun, to refer to, which actually means life without God. He gets to the end of his life, he takes that, that, that rearview mirror type of perspective, and he makes this declaration over his own existence. It's all just a vapor. It's a mist. It's here. It's gone. It's vanity. It's meaningless. So far, just in the first four chapters, Solomon chased meaning in five different areas of his life. He started with wisdom, Ecclesiastes 1.13. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. Solomon explored ancient wisdom, wise sayings, books, intellect, intellectual pursuits, academic rigor, the scientific empirical method, philosophy, sociology, all of the other ologies, and he got to the end of it and he came up absolutely empty. 
He's like, I, I don't have any answers for anybody. So he kept wisdom with him, but then he went looking somewhere else to keep the W's going. He, he went to find meaning in wine, which also refers to pleasure and laughter and foolish behavior. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1 says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what's good. But this also proved to be meaningless. Solomon partied with the best and the worst of them. He laughed. He got wasted. He lived under the mantra, eat, drink, for tomorrow I die. And after the hangovers and the regrets of the one-night stands, he says, it's just meaningless. So he looks for meaning somewhere else. A little bit more virtuous this time. He looks for meaning in work. Boy, we need to pay attention to this one. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon thinks, I know what I'm going to do. Wisdom didn't do it. Wine didn't do it. So I'm going to go after work. I'm going to do something. I'm going to pour myself into my career. I'm going to chase up the corporate ladder as fast and as best as I can. These are his words. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had other slaves who were also born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself and my eyes nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all of my toil. That is quite the resume. Verse 11, yet. When I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Nothing fulfilled him. Work left him empty. Wine left him empty. Wisdom left him empty. So he said, well, I might as well go after the money. So he pursued wealth. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 8. I just read it to you. He says, he amassed silver and gold. Now, it's just a small collection. He amassed it. He hoarded it. He, he filled everything he could with gold and silver, and he still ended up with nothing. See, I'm just chasing the wind. That's four out of five. Here comes the last one. He keeps chasing worldly relationships. Now, I got to step outside of Ecclesiastes to find the historical part of this. First Kings chapter one, or 11, verse 3 tells us about his relational world. This might rock your world if you don't know this already. It says Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. Let me not sugarcoat this one. God told Solomon, don't do relationships this way. He did it anyway. God said, you were supposed to have one wife. You got 699 too many, Solomon, plus you've got 300 casual sex partners on the side. Chased it all. Wisdom, wine, work, wealth, and worldly relationships. And what was his conclusion? It's meaningless. Now, 
before we do what most Christians do, I'm not assuming you're a follower of Jesus, but this is a tendency we tend to have around here. We do a really good job judging. Don't judge Solomon yet. Don't judge Solomon. Anybody else in the room ever chased meaning in the human wisdom of prolific writers only to find out it left you empty and more confused than you started? Anybody else in the room ever drowned their sorrows on a Friday night and woke up with a Saturday morning case of the regrets? Anyone else in the room ever buried themselves in work and found out that for everything you tried to gain, it actually ended up lost? Anyone else in the room ever chased a dollar and found out that your hunger for more was never satisfied because there was always just a new model of phone or a new model of car just outside of your reach? Anybody else in the room ever tried to fill your heart with sex instead of a committed, faithful intimacy and you ended up just feeling more alone? guys are really quiet. <laughs> you know, what's interesting to me. Our culture teaches us that that will actually fulfill you. All five of those things. Our culture keeps saying over and over again, the chase is normal. Just keep pursuing. Can I be so bold? Culture's wrong. Culture's wrong. And Solomon is saying, I've been there. I've done that. Please don't. Please don't come down the same road that I did. Solomon would love us to be countercultural. Last week we went countercultural. I encouraged you out of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 to do something that was a little out of the comfort zone for many people who were here in the room. It was a long weekend and we were here and it was 80 degrees outside. And so the people that came obviously wanted to be here. And I encouraged them to do something biblical. I said, when we've done the service today, we're going to do something crazy. Okay, we're going to linger. We're just going to wait we're going to hang out. We're going to talk to the people around us that we've been sitting beside for 10 years and never met them. We're just going to have a conversation. We opened the door to it and the craziest thing happened. People lingered. Even the introverts lingered. We finished the 9.30 service. There were people still standing in the commons while the 11.15 was walking in the door. The sleep-in service is like, what in the world happened here? They were freaked out. Thank you for doing that. They need a little help. I'm just saying, okay? So we experienced biblical community, and it's countercultural. Let me prove it to you. This is Tuesday's copy of the Seattle Times. There was a headline. It's been picked up by the Bellingham Herald twice this week. You can read the article for yourself. The headline says this, much of the state doesn't want to talk. By the way, they're talking about our state, nobody else's. Much of the state doesn't want to talk, let alone make friends. Somebody dropped this by for me, and then I went and found it on my own. I'm like, that's interesting. That's fascinating. So I read the article. It details a psychological phenomenon that they're calling the Seattle freeze, okay? The Seattle freeze basically says this. They did a huge poll in Washington state, most of it in Seattle, and what they came away with was this. About half of the population in Washington has no interest in talking to another human being if they don't already know them. No interest whatsoever. They don't even want to interact with people they don't know. So what do they do? They lock their eyes on their office door or their garage door and they just blow past people because they're convinced, I can do this by myself. Now we giggle to ourselves, right? We're just kind of like, 
It's just so Seattle, right? You know, those Seattle people. No, it actually represented all of us. And then I keep reading the article and it gets a little bit more grave and a little bit more grim with every single word. I'll quote the article. Loneliness and social isolation, or isolation have been declared a public health risk in numerous countries and have been described in scientific journals as more dangerous than diabetes or obesity as, and as much of a health risk as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It continues, not long ago, most people claimed they had five people in their lives they could count on. Now that number is down to one and in some cases zero. It continues, people are experiencing epidemic levels of stress, anxiety, and depressive symptoms. Apparently the Seattle freeze isn't funny or new. It's actually an old phenomenon under the sun. And just because people would dismiss it as saying, well, that's just the way people in the Pacific Northwest are. That's just the way we choose to be. For the love of God, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right. In fact, my Bible says something to me. There's, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Isn't this Solomon relevant? It's like, wow. So with that little bucket of joy as an introduction, aren't you so glad you came this morning? Let's jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 5, okay? That's what we've covered in the first four chapters, all right? Let's jump to Ecclesiastes 5. In the introduction to 5, you've already experienced in our worship time because we actually tried to give just a little bit of space so we could draw near to God and listen to Him speak. By the way, if we didn't give you enough space... You've got a whole day to listen. God speaks outside of this room. I hope we know that, right? In fact, sometimes I think he speaks way louder outside of this room. Let me refresh your memory of what we talked about. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God's in heaven. You're on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because as soon as we're done Ecclesiastes, we're going to spend seven weeks with the seven Hebrew words for worship. That's how we're going to take us through July and a chunk of August. We're actually going to look at it from the perspective of not, not do we, what we want to get out of worship. What does God want out of it? And why does God want something out of it? And we're going to talk about seven different physical postures that God actually says, I want my children to do it this way because it's good for them. Okay, it's good for them. But Solomon's going to kind of preempt that on the front end here. He's going to give us some simple wisdom in worship. All right, here's number one. Listen first and listen well. Come to worship with the intent to hear God, not to be heard. That's hard for me. Because I want to tell God all kinds of things. 
I have a list. I have expectations. I want him to do this and this, and I need timing on this one, and I got to get him to fulfill this particular piece. And very often, I don't have any, I don't have any time at all to hear what God might have to say. Come with the intent to hear God, not to be heard. Come with the priority to serve and not be served. I wonder how it would revolutionize our Sunday morning worship if we came with the intent, I'm just going to show up to serve somebody. I'm going to pay attention to the people in the room. I'm going to see if somebody needs a tissue or a cup of water or if somebody needs help inside of the building or if somebody needs a loving follower of Jesus just to show up, put a hand on their shoulder and say, can I actually pray for you? Come with the intent to be changed, not to change someone else. Don't come in with a side agenda like, I really, really hope my spouse gets it this week. God says, really? Let your words be few. Come to listen to what God is saying. Let it sink in and then, and then actually do it. Secondly, let your words be few. You know, I don't know about you, but I am usually speechless in two situations. One is when I get caught doing something bad, right? I get caught doing something bad and I'm like, oh, right? I also am out of words when I get caught in shame. Because when I'm caught in shame, I don't know about you, but I stare at the ground and kick dirt. I become speechless very quickly when I'm caught in a sin. Isn't it interesting that on the other end of the spectrum, Solomon says, you want to know a good moment to be speechless? It's when you're standing in awe of God. Stand in awe of God. I heard you. <laughs> oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Have you ever just stopped on a night when God has painted the sky black and then put these tiny little pinpoints of light, each one an individual star, a bright moon? Have you ever just stopped in your tracks and thought for just a second, God did all of that so that you could see it in that moment? Have you ever just stopped in your track, just like, wow. I don't know what people do when they look up into the sky and say to themselves, this is such a beautiful reflection of a coincidental, coincidental chance of spontaneous combustion. <laughs> kind of seems a little empty, doesn't it? Just, I can do you one better. The God of the universe, in perfect love, created ex nihilo out of nothing. And he put it all together and holds it all together and continues to hold it all together simply for the enjoyment of his kids. Somebody sent me a video years ago. Started off with a man out for a walk with his dog late at night. Just the two of them walking down a path. The dog was out sniffing around doing what dogs do. The scene cut to the same man walking up to a blackboard. Didn't say a word. Picked up a piece of chalk and started writing a mathematical computation, an equation. 
He wrote from one side of the board to the other, then he came back and he did it again and he did it again and he did it again. He filled the entire board with this humongous mathematical equation. He lost me at the infinity sign at the beginning. I mean, I was just completely lost, but he was just writing, 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 writing. When he got to the end and put down his chalk, he said, this is the equation that calculates the amount of time it takes for the sun to send light to the moon, to reflect off of the moon and to bounce back to the earth. And then he said, and I am in awe of the fact that God does this so I don't lose my dog. (laughs) Stand in awe. You don't need to say anything. God's in heaven, you're on earth, and it's okay. Completely changing directions. I love the first part of Ecclesiastes 5. When I read the chapter, I'm like, I don't have no idea how I'm going to make this turn. (laughs) Because you're going to get some spiritual whiplash. He finishes this beautiful talk about worship, and then he goes, now I'm going to talk to you about the fact that your money actually is horrible. (laughs) All right? Here's some wisdom and wealth, okay? Not all positive, believe it or not. Solomon shares some principles. First one is this. The more you have, the more you want. Boy, isn't that the truth? (laughs) Ecclesiastes 5.10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves his wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Now, anybody could say that, but because it's coming from one of the wealthiest men in human history, that takes on a bit of a different angle, doesn't it? Solomon is saying, this is what happened. Instead of hungering after God, I started hungering after cash. And the problem is this, the the hungrier I became, the less satisfied I became. So I ended up craving more and more and more and more. And Solomon says, it's meaningless. You can have a fat bank account, it's meaningless. Secondly, he teaches this, the more you have, the more people want to take. Chapter 5, verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? Solomon is actually describing the feeling that he gets in his heart when his friends line up and say, hey, Solomon, you've got plenty. How about kicking a little bit this way? And then he talks about the emptiness of looking at all of this stuff that he has that everybody else wants and he looks at it and goes, I thought it would fulfill me and it just simply doesn't. I just, I thought the newest phone would do it but 30 days after I bought it, they came out with another one. Solomon says it's empty when your friends come and you're not a friend, you're a loan service. They're looking for help. They're looking for a handout. And he goes, and I just feel empty because not only do I feel empty with the request, I feel empty with the fact that anything that I give them is just going to disappear because we're not really friends anyway. Thirdly, he teaches the more you have, the more you worry about loss. Chapter five, verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet. Whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Solomon is saying, I lay awake at night because I've got a lot and all I can think about is how am I not going to lose it? It's become my functional savior. I've wrapped myself around the stuff and now he's lost. 
He says, the fact that you actually have a lot will drive you to worry because you end up trying to seek more stability all of the time. You're always constantly managing the risk because you have it and your worst nightmare is actually losing it. I, I, I'm so touched by this. Solomon says, you know what I would rather have? I'd rather have one good night's sleep. And you can picture him looking out the palace window at the men and the women who were working down in his vineyards and he was actually envious of them because he knew they get to go home tonight and rest. And I'm just laying awake here, tossing and turning, wondering who's coming to get my empire next? Here's the last one. Solomon says, the more you have, the more prone you are to greed. Chapter five, verse 13. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. That's heavy language right there. A grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Famous verse. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb and naked he will depart. Bottom line, you're going out the same way you came in and you can't attach a U-Haul. Not possible. Solomon is looking at himself in this moment. He's heartbroken. He's looking at himself because here's what he sees. Solomon, you don't save, you stockpile. Solomon, you don't have, you're hoarding. Solomon, you're not just keeping a few precious things, you're collecting everything you can and it's meaningless. Meaningless. Found some amazing research on lottery winners. You know, we think about that, right? Boy, if I, if I could just scratch and win. <laughs> Man, if I could just win a couple cool million dollars, everything in my life would be okay. Because I mean, that is right. Winning the lottery, every person's dream, right? Let's just go after that Powerball, mega my bucks, millionaire thing, whatever that happens to be. I'm not encouraging you to do that. Just so you know, <laughs> read Ecclesiastes. Okay. But I learned something. Over 80% of lottery winners after five years are broke, alone, or dead. The suicide rate is off the chart for lottery winners. You know why? Because it doesn't solve anything. My friend John Havland used to say this to me all the time. Grant, wherever you go, there you are. Apparently being wealthy isn't the answer to all of our problems. And I know some of you are just like, Grant, can we take a breath? Like this is heavy. I need a nap. Chapter five, verse 18, Solomon finally comes up for air and says something he has not said so far in the entire book. He actually uses the word good. Let me read it to you, starting in verse 18. This is what I have observed to be good. That it's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given them. For this is their lot. Can we stop there for just a second? We don't often talk about a theology of enjoyment. We're kind of scared of that. It's like, well, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. Let me just make it completely clear for you. Whatever God has blessed you with, you're actually supposed to enjoy it. Just don't worship it. Okay? If God gave you a dog, take the dog for a walk. It's beautiful. 
God gave you a bike, go for a ride. God gave you a set of bongos, go to Boulevard Park and have at it. I mean, whatever you want to do, right? All right? You're going to drive everybody else crazy, but it's like, I'm just worshiping the Lord, you know? <laughs> Pastor Grant said so. That's what I'm up to, all right? So, I mean, you're actually supposed to enjoy it. If God gave you a car, today would be a great day. Go for a drive. Roll down the windows. Turn on some country music. Sing at the top of your lungs. Stop and get some froyo. Whatever you want to do, God actually wants his children to enjoy what it is that he has blessed them with. Enjoy it. Just don't worship it. Verse 19, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil. Boy, underline this. This is a gift of God. Be thankful. Love it. Enjoy yourself. You want to enjoy it to its fullest extent? Use it to bless somebody else. Verse 20. They, meaning the recipients of this great gift, they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I read a satisfaction survey this past week. What they did was they took over 300 different studies on what satisfied people. They collated all of the information together. It was based completely on scientific data, not the way people feel. And the conclusion of satisfaction was this, worldwide, Okay, worldwide. The most satisfied and content people on the planet have three good friends and enjoy an honest day's pay for an honest day's work, period. That sounds pretty simple. That even sounds doable. <laughs> Solomon is saying, I don't have three friends. And I got a lot of money, but I don't even understand what honest work is anymore. So to me, it's meaningless. But I love the fact there's a glimmer of hope here because here's his new conclusion. Working hard and enjoying the fruit of righteous labor, that's a gift from God. You know, the Bible talks a lot about rich and poor. It talks even more about righteous and unrighteous. Let me be transparent. I have met some poor people who are very righteous. I've met some rich people who are very righteous. I've met some poor people that are not righteous. And I've met some rich people that are not righteous. So apparently, your socioeconomic status and living for Jesus are not related. Solomon's saying, I, I, I'm as rich as can be, and it's not everything it's cracked up to be. Some of us would say, I don't feel rich and it's not everything that it's cracked up to be. Could it be that the answer to a meaningful life is not just elevating your tax bracket? Could it be that Jesus has a different way when he says, oh, by the way, guys, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Solomon would say, hey, guys, when he says full, he's not talking about a full wallet. Because Jesus said a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, period. When Jesus says, I've come that you have it to the full, Solomon would say he's not referring to a full stomach because Jesus later on said, man does not live by bread alone. 
but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I think we should probably listen to that. Solomon would say, hey guys, when Jesus says he came that you have a full life, he's not talking about a full portfolio because later in his ministry, Jesus told a story about a young entrepreneurial business person who had these immense barns, warehouses, but he wasn't satisfied with them, so he tore them all down and he built even bigger barns. And the night he finished the project, the Holy Spirit of God came and required his soul of him, which means he actually died. And because he'd invested all of his life, all of his energy and all of his time into just building bigger and better, God had a name for him. He called him a fool. Solomon would say, listen to Jesus. Don't be a fool. It's not about a full wallet, not about a full stomach, not about a full portfolio. It's about a full heart. A heart that overflows for eternity. A heart that is flooded with grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and generosity and gratitude. Solomon saying, you want to know how to do life that's meaningful. I want you to go out this afternoon and spend meaningful time doing what God has called you to do today. Make wise choices on the investment of your time. Listen to Solomon's warning, but even more so, listen to the heart of Jesus saying, you want to know how to do this full? I can fill you up. We can start choosing today. And it's still early. It's 1026 You've got a whole day in front of you. What are you going to take away today so that the overflow of your heart reflects not a life that's meaningless, but a life that's meaningful? Let's have a very personal moment as a church family. And I'm going to be as careful as I can doing this, but sometimes I think um, our big room doesn't really help us out a whole lot in our work to feel like every single person matters. So I have a sister in this room um, who's going to punch me later on. And it's okay, Kimmer, you're allowed to do that, okay? David Ryan lived a life that was meaningful. David spent years with his family loving the kids of Christ the King through a beautiful ministry called Awana. David wanted kids to hide the word of God in their heart. David helped see a vision in Africa for a beautiful home called the Garden of Eden. I've been there some of the most beautiful children on the face of the earth. David poured his heart out into our ministry in Africa. He poured his ministry, or his heart out into the ministry of Awana. He poured his heart out into his family. I wanted to be David when I grew up, even though he was younger than me. About 14 months ago, David started having stomach pains. And the Ryan family has walked graciously and courageously through some very, very difficult moments. Good news followed by bad news, followed by challenging news. And every single step of the way, Jesus was there with them. 
David passed away Friday morning. That was hard. But every moment of his life was meaningful because he made choices. Yesterday afternoon, I don't know how they did it, but David's daughter, Victoria, got married. And the family gathered, and we celebrated Jake and Tori's wedding. And believe me, the Heavenly Father was there. Tori's earthly dad was so present. And we got to see what was meaningful, not meaningless. And so today we're going to do something meaningful. Um, Frank and Cindy, would you guys help me out? Because I don't want to overwhelm. But Kim and her family are, are right over here. John and Lloyd, could you just go and put a hand on their shoulder? Heather, you right there? C could you guys just kind of gather around just a little bit here? We've got a whole row of them. Keith and Ellen, you want to hop out? Cindy, thank you so much. JD and Shelly, thank you. Okay. Church, let's pray. God, I want to thank you so much for David Ryan. What a picture of meaningful. And God, how it rippled over into his wife, his kids, his family, and this church family. And now, God, I pray that you would just wrap your arms around the Ryan family. God, I have no idea how they're doing, what they're doing right now, but I know it's you because they love you. And now we just simply need them to know how much we love them. Prince of Peace, would you come? Mighty God, would you come? Wonderful counselor, would you come? Oh, Lord Jesus, please come. Cover the Ryan family with your grace, your goodness, your mercy, and may they feel just a little bit of the love that we have for them today. God, we thank you that David is safely home with you and that his life was so much more than a vapor. God, David's life changed so many of us. We are thankful. We are grateful. We commit the Ryan family to you, asking that you would allow us now the honor and privilege to walk before them, to open up the road, God, so that they can walk with confidence in the days ahead. I pray that they would feel loved by you and loved by your church today. In Jesus' name. We pray, and all God's people said, amen. 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 Thanks, everybody. So we're going to worship as we close our service today. We're going to worship by giving back to God our tithes and our offerings. If you're visiting with us for the first time, you've already given us the greatest gift we could want, which is the fact that you came. Hope you'll come back and see us again. For those of us who call Christ the King home, this is our opportunity. For those of us who have moved beyond visitor status, right? Some of us are like, I've been visiting Christ the King for nine years. That's been awesome. It's like, 
some point we step across the line and we become a part of the family and what God's doing together. For those of you who have already given online, thank you so much. But this is an opportunity to practice what Solomon's been talking to us about. Guys, it's not about this. It just doesn't do it. It's about meaningful moments together as a family. So we're going to give back to God. The ushers are going to start in the back. They're going to work towards the front. And when the offering passes you by, you're going to stand and we're going to sing. We're going to use music as a way of worshiping God. Solomon said, there's actually a gift available. Go get it. Come on, church. You have a day. It's a gift. Don't waste it. Get it with everything that you have. Follow it with passion. He's faithful. He's loving. He's kind. And he so desperately wants you to live this day to its fullest extent. He came so that you would have life to the full. So let's start by worshiping God in the next four minutes. And then let's go and do life together. God bless you. Thanks again for watching. We're so glad that you joined us today. Once again, we hope you'll get involved in biblical face-to-face community wherever you happen to be today. If you'd like more information about Christ the King Community Church, if you'd like to give online, or if you'd like to submit a prayer request, or even get connected in a small group, you can find out more about us at ctk.church.